Have you ever lost your keys before, or your wallet, or your, or your glasses? In the past few years, I've been constantly losing my glasses. For most of my young adult life, all I've had to remember leaving the house was three things. My wallet, my keys, and my phone. My wallet, my keys, and my phone. And most of the time, I got it. Uh, there was three things. And uh, that was kind of manageable until I, I hit my early 40s, and the DM person told me that I needed to see an, an optometrist. And when that happened, I entered a whole new world because now I had to remember four things. And, and, and years later, five or six years later, I'm still struggling with that fourth thing. At least once a week, I ask my wife, hey, honey, did you, did you see my glasses anywhere? My wife won't let me buy ear pods. She says, I'll lose them. And my response is, uh, lacks any sort of confidence that she's wrong. I kind of mumble silently to myself, no, I, I won't lose. But I have a simple strategy when I lose my glasses, like many, of you, like many of you, I just go back to the beginning, right? We ask ourselves, where, we, where did we go today when we woke up this morning, when I dropped my son off to, at school, was I wearing my glasses? Uh, I think I was wearing my glasses at, at the, when I went to the restaurant, and they called the restaurant, hey, did you find some glasses today? And usually they're, all, they're somebody, somewhere in the house already, on the kitchen table, maybe right next to me. One time, I thought I lost my sunglasses in the car, and I realized I was wearing them. We go back to the beginning when we lose a lot of things. Not just personal possessions. When a, a marriage sours, you might go back to the beginning and, and try to figure out what went wrong. Where did, it all, where did it all go south? Maybe in a career, you, you're in a slump. You go back to the past where you enjoyed so much success. You see what you may have lost. Sometimes you hear of athletes whose careers fall apart. They go back to the beginning to see if they need to uh, fix their swing, maybe recover a mentality they used to have the book of Colossians, Paul is writing to the churches who have more or less forgotten the gospel. They've somehow lost the grace in the gospel, like, like someone losing a wedding ring at the beach. And so in today's verses, Paul, in response, he goes back to the beginning to help them regain the free grace of the gospel they are now trying to pay God for. You can open your Bibles. Let me read the, our verses for this morning, chapter 3, 1 through 5. Chapter 3, 1 through 5. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things for nothing, if indeed it was for nothing? So then, does he who provide you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In last Sunday's passage, Paul concluded the theme of gospel independence and apostolic authenticity that pervaded chapters 1 and 2. He, he finally got to the, the, the gospel and he explained what it was he was defending in the first two chapters. Okay, we, we get it, Paul. You received your gospel from Jesus directly. You didn't add to it. You didn't take anything away from it. But what is the gospel anyways? And so last Sunday, Paul told us. He explained clearly that Christ is the gospel. Justification by faith is the main theme of Galatians. It is the pillar of gospel theology. The church stands or falls uh, depending on whether we get justification right. But justification is in Christ. 
Christ is the gospel, and we find everything in him, including our justification. When we are saved, we are justified by faith alone. We're not saved by works of the law, but the gospel I have faith in is the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Today's passage, Paul helps the Galatians see why their strain or our strain from from the gospel is so incredibly foolish. In verse 1, the the first reason Paul gives is that it contradicts the work of Christ on the cross. And then in verses 2 through 5, Paul gives a second reason the actions of Galatians are, are, are so foolish. It contradicts the work of the Spirit. And so Paul says, remember the cross in verse 1, and in verses 2 through 5, he says, remember the Spirit. Look at, let's look at verse 1, remember the cross. What happened to you? I have a feeling that for a, for a few of you, things have changed since you first, have believed, you first believed in Christ. I don't think I'm, I'm spinning a roulette, ta- roulette table when I say that a few of you do not love him in the same degree that you used to. What happened to you? Who bewitched you? What bewitched you? And Paul asks the same question in verse 1, but he, he asks in a way that is a, a lot less nicer than I just did. He calls them, in verse 1, O foolish Galatians! Remember, in, in chapter 1, verse 11, he referred to them as brothers, but now his tone changes, his tone changes in, in chapter 3, and, and we understand that. There's nothing more sad, there's nothing more upsetting, there's nothing more confusing when believers we know are on the verge of apostatizing. When they're questioning the the gospel and Christ and the Bible. But these are Paul's spiritual children. He personally personally led them to Christ. He he led them to the cross. He, He has a lot more investment than most of us when we see the same kind of gospel infidelity in others calls them foolish Galatians. They weren't intellectual fools. They were moral fools. They were spiritual fools. Paul is is so incredulous. He's so bewildered. He asks in verse 1, who bewitched you? This word is used of magic, magical spells. That was a thing in the first century. Paul is saying, what tarot cards have you been reading? This is so bizarre. Paul doesn't really think they've been bewitched by a magic spell. It's just a, an expression of his, his total confusion. What kind of lunatic exchanges a free gift for a debt? Paul says here that he, he taught the Gospels, to, he, talked to, he taught the Gospel to, to the Galatians, it, it, verse, three, verse 1, he taught it as if Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Like they were there before the, before the cross, watching him die before their eyes. The word publicly portrayed is literally a, a, a billboard, used for a billboard. And, and that word portrayed, it, it was used to describe first century billboards that made public statements in a town. We have one of those billboards in some museum somewhere of a, of a certain father posting a billboard telling the town he was no longer responsible for his son's debts. The billboards were also used to advertise houses for sale. The cross to Paul was a billboard of a different nature, however. You see, the the cross was, 
was first invented to slowly torture and publicly shame criminals. Unlike the death of a a quick beheading, the, the cross intentionally kept victims alive long enough so that they would experience the very depth of suffering. Nails were hammered through the main arteries near the hands and the feet, and those hanging on the cross would spend hours, even days, uh, pulling themselves up in order to breathe. So agonizing was the pain, the word excruciating was based, it it was invented based on the severity of the cross. The, The word literally means from the cross. Crucifixion was a public spectacle designed to humiliate you, to dehumanize you. And crosses were usually placed along Roman roads. The victims were set in the most vulnerable of positions, naked, arms stretched out, alone in order to be insulted as they struggled for breath. Their clothes were stripped, their dignity was stripped even more bare, century before Jesus, we have an, an historical account of a slave, a slave revolt in Rome where 6,000 people were crucified along a 130-mile stretch of road leaving Rome. Those dying on the cross, along with the dead being eaten by vultures and vermin, served as a billboard to the world declaring the power of Rome. This is the power of the Roman Empire, and this is what happens to you when you revolt, when you disobey Caesar. And it was this symbol of defeat and shame that early believers found their glory in. The world didn't understand it. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says that the cross was a, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. The Jews wanted a Messiah to overthrow Rome. They didn't want somebody who died on a Roman cross. The Gentiles, uh, they, they, they pursued salvation through philosophy and wisdom. Their idea, their ideal of a good life was the life of a contemplative philosopher, not a man hanging on a Roman cross. To the Jews and to the Greeks, Jesus was an utter failure. And his, mo- and his followers were mocked accordingly. We actually have an early graffiti drawing from the second century of a, of a worshiper looking up. It's kind of scribbly-scrabbly. And, and the worshiper is looking up at Jesus on the cross, but in the place of Jesus' head, there's the head of a donkey. And below the drawing reads the Greek inscription, Alexa Menas worships his God. What a joke. What a joke. This is your your God. When Paul publicly proclaimed the cross to the Galatians, it was like this Roman billboard, but Paul's billboard was a paradox. Paul's billboard of the cross said that the weakness of God was stronger than the power of men. He preached the paradox of the gospel, the paradox of the cross. That, that God had transformed an instrument of death into an instrument of life. That victory was accomplished by defeat. That exaltation came through humiliation. That God turned shame into glory. That the kingdom of majesty was inaugurated through a suffering servant. You see, at the cross, 
God had reversed everything. What did Jesus on the cross accomplish for sinners? Atonement. Atonement is how God reconciles sinners through Christ's death on the cross. Jesus' death brings atonement between God and sinners. And the atonement is the apex of our salvation. How so? Why? Because the atonement takes care of our greatest problem. You see, as hard as life can be, as difficult relationships with people are, as heartbreaking as, can- as a cancer diagnosis, as tragic as the death of a loved one, listen to me, your greatest problem is sin. Jesus Christ and the gospel will never mean anything to you until you first realize that sin is your biggest problem in life. You will never love Christ unless you realize sin is your your greatest problem. See, if sin is the least of your worries, the cross that takes away your sin will always be insignificant to you. If, if sin is just a theory you are intellectually aware of, then the cross will be just a theory you, you kind of think about from time to time. There's a song I, I, I hear on the, on the radio about Jesus Christ. It's a pretty song. It's a good song. And I like it. Except, it talks about Jesus and all the benefits he gives us. You know, he heals us, he takes away our depression, he, he takes away our sadness. But it not once talks about Jesus taking away our sin. And I'm just like, you missed the best part. You missed the best part. It's like a, if I was a Michael Jordan fan, and I just, let's say I, I'm a Michael Jordan fan, and I'm, and, and I'm, 30 for 30, a biography, a documentary about Michael Jordan's life, and, I'm, and I, got my, I got my Chicago Bulls uniform and my Air Jordans, and I'm, I'm waiting, and then part one, his, his childhood years, his friends, his, his hobbies, part two, his uh, marriage, his kids, and I'm just waiting for the best part. Part three, his retirement, his businesses, and then it ends. Then I would be like, what just happened? You, you missed the most important part about this basketball player. You would yell at the screen. You, you would be so upset. The reason you don't love the gospel very much is because you really don't think sin is your, bigger pro- your biggest problem. You've got bigger concerns. You see, if, if going through this book for months, if it bores you, it's because you don't realize how big of a problem sin is in your life. If sin isn't your greatest sorrow, the gospel will never be your greatest joy. Why don't you feel inside sincerely that sin is your biggest problem? It might be because you're a legalist. Like deep down you think that all the good you've done for the Lord over the years wipes away all the bad you've done? 
Paul has been trying to get this into your thick skull for months. You still don't get it. Justification is good news for those who truly know they deserve condemnation. Do you know you deserve it? If you don't really know that sin is your biggest problem, would you pray that God, through His Spirit, might make that truth a reality to you? And when He answers that prayer, this book will come alive to you. And when I finish this book in 10 years, you'll beg me to start over. You see, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, sin entered the world and ruined everything. It ruined us to the core because we inherited this sin from Adam. You probably heard that sin means to fall short of God's standard. It's, it's missing the mark, but it's much more than a mistake. It's much more than a flaw. Sin is not like getting a few questions wrong on a math test. Sin involves the personal rejection of God as your king. And this is why sin is cosmic treason in the highest degree. Because with this rejection comes your attempt to replace God with something else on the throne. The Bible calls this idolatry. Whenever we replace God with anything else for our identity, for meaning, or for personal satisfaction, we are committing the sin of idolatry. Sin isn't just doing bad things. It's turning good things into ultimate things. And so we choose to worship our idols of money and career and reputation and sex and power. But think about it. If you're the one choosing the idol to serve, if you're the one deciding what is right and what is wrong, then the ultimate object of your worship are not your many idols. It's you. You're the golden calf. In other words, sin is the attempt to dethrone God and replace Him with yourself. And this makes sin a cosmic coup of the greatest criminality. We're guilty of this. We're guilty of this. Why is sin your biggest problem in life? Because sin makes us blind to God's glory. Sin makes us the greatest enemies of God. You see, as horrible as your suffering is, your suffering doesn't make God your enemy. He's not mad that you're suffering. Because of our sin, you deserve God's judgment. God doesn't judge you because you lost your job. Sin is our greatest problem because it puts us under condemnation. And as bad as cancer is, cancer doesn't condemn you. Sin is your greatest problem. Sin makes you ignorant of truth and goodness. Because of your sin, you've been exiled, you've been orphaned, 
you're dead in your transgressions, you're hostile to God and others. This is why sin is your greatest problem. So if sin is your greatest problem, then the atonement is our greatest joy. When you fully feel the weight of your sin as the very worst news of your life, only then will the gospel be good news. And for those who have some sense of how great a problem sin is, let me tell you what the atonement did. The atonement took away our sin. It took away all the punishment that sin brings on sinners. How did Jesus do this? Jesus became your substitute. The heart of the atonement is substitution. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. How did Jesus reconcile sinners to a holy God? Jesus, listen to this, died in our place for our sins. The heart of the atonement is that Jesus died in your place for your sins. He received all the penalty and all the consequences for your rebellion to for your rebellion to God in order that you might experience all the blessings of Jesus' kingdom. And we call this the great exchange. He died so that we could live. He took our guilt so we could be forgiven. He took away our shame so we could have his honor. He was condemned so that we could be justified. He was plunged into the deepest darkness so that we could live in the light. In other words, when the Bible says that Christ is our substitute, it means he takes our place and we get to take his. Can you believe it? In the Old Testament, the sacrificial system pointed to the reality of substitution. All the animal sacrifices stipulated in the the Levitical system of worship pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. Almost every animal sacrifice symbolized that the, that the animal being slaughtered was taking your place. And so the worshiper would bring the lamb to the, to the priest. He would, he would take his hand and he put it on the head of the lamb. And it was a symbol that your sins were being transform, transferred to the lamb. And then the lamb would be slaughtered before you. The innocent lamb for the guilty worshiper. We're studying Leviticus on Friday, and it's not a boring book. It's not a boring book for those who know that sin is your greatest problem. When you know sin is your greatest problem, every animal sacrifice reminds you of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You just want to read it over and over again. The New Testament emphasizes this sacrificial sacrificial nature of Jesus' death. The phrase blood of Christ is mentioned three times as often as the word cross, five times as often as the word death. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I was listening to Al Mohler 
in Leviticus, and he talked to me, and he said to, he said to his little Bible, uh, his little Bible study, his little Sunday school class on Sunday morning, don't, don't use that word sacrifice. That's revert. That, that's that's reserved for Christ. We find prophecy in the Old Testament pointing to the substitutionary nature of Jesus' sacrifice as well. In the book of Isaiah, before Isaiah talks of a kingdom, in chapters 55 and following, he prophesies of a suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And Isaiah's point is that there's no glory of a kingdom without the blood of a, of a cross. The heart of Isaiah 53 is verse 5, where substitution is emphasized. Listen to verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And then we get to the New Testament, and the, and the New Testament authors also emphasize substitution. They write that Jesus died for the ungodly, Romans 5. He gave himself up for me, Galatians 2. He suffered for you, 1 Peter 2. He he laid down his life for the sheep, John 10. He gave himself up for us, Ephesians 5. He laid down his life for us, 1 John 3. He gave himself up for us, Titus 2. He died for us, Romans 5. And so scripture clearly teaches that Christ is our atonement. But how does this substitutionary death achieve our salvation? answer that, you have to remember the core problem we have is that sin has ruptured humanity's relationship to God. And this fractured communion with God has has two sides to it. There's humanity's side marked by rebellion and idolatry. We have rejected God. We find our satisfaction in the creation instead of in, in the Creator. The other side of the problem is God's holy, righteous, fair response to our sin, which is judgment. A good judge would never lets the guilty go free. A good judge holds man accountable for their crimes. And yet, God's wrath is not a divine temper tantrum. His wrath is a, a holy, settled opposition to our sin. And therefore, God's response can only be judgment. It can only be uh, curse. It can only be ultimately eternal hell. And here is where the logic of substitution reveals the how of atonement. By dying in our place, Jesus takes on himself what we deserve. He takes on judgment. He takes on curse. He, he absorbs our eternal damnation on the cross. And so Jesus pays the penalty for our sin, and we, in exchange, receive the immeasurable riches of his grace. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. You understand that sin is your greatest problem? I was going to bed last night and I was worried about all these things, all these things, and I was reminded of this sermon. I said to myself, George, your greatest problem is sin. And it's been taken care of. 
been taken care of. Don't you realize that? Who has bewitched you? When you first believed in the gospel, did, did you know that sin was your greatest problem? Were you convinced that Jesus died as your substitute? If you did, then why does your life look like you're just going through the motions? Why are you playing these silly games in church? Why aren't you living like there's no one else in the world that matters except for Christ alone? As I, was, I, as I was studying this passage the week, I kept thinking about my first months, my first year as a believer. And it was so wonderful. All of the memories of the first time knowing Christ was, was such a wonderful memory to think about. Because it was just me and Christ. It was my all in all. There was nobody else in the world. I served on the service team, and on Saturday we would get the vacuum cleaner and we would vacuum the carpets. And I loved it. I loved it. It wasn't like, this is the worst job ever. It was, I get to serve the king, the king of kings. This is nobody. Hallelujah. What happened to you? Who bewitched you? What bewitched you? Why do you keep trusting in yourself? Why, why don't you realize sin is your greatest problem? See, the essence of legalism is, is, is really, it's not about rules. It's, it's just you refuse to, to trust that God could be so gracious to give you his son for free. Are you strained from the gospel? Remember the cross and how you first believed. Now in verses 2 through 5, Paul gives a second reason the actions of Galatians are so foolish. Their legalism contradicts the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Paul says, remember the cross in verse 1, and now in verses 2 through 5, Paul says, remember the Spirit. Remember the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, this is the only thing I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even though Paul had reminded them of the atoning work of Christ, really the, the passage, is, the focus is on the Holy Spirit. And in verse 2, Paul asks another rhetorical question. And, and these are supposed to be home-run questions. They're, they're supposed to elicit an obvious, no, duh, yes. Paul says in verse 2, you receive the, the Spirit by faith. I, I was there... When you receive the Spirit, nobody told you to get circumcised. Nobody said you had to keep these dietary restrictions. Nobody said you had to reserve, observe these special Jewish holidays. You heard the gospel, you believed, and then you received the Spirit. And so by asking how they received the Spirit in these verses, Paul assumes something that is central to his gospel theology. And it's this. When a person comes to Christ and is justified, the person receives the Spirit of God. He receives the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? He does a lot. But Paul here focuses on regeneration. Regeneration 
is the radical renewal of your person. And this renewal of your character, it first involved this intellectual illumination. You begin to understand the Bible and God. I remember in college, I, I went on a, a road trip with my parents across Canada. I was a pagan, total, totally lost, and I said one night, I'm going to become a Christian today. I'm going to become a Christian. And I opened up the drawer, there was a Gideon's Bible, start reading, couldn't understand a thing. Closed the Bible, put it back in the drawer, nothing happened. But regeneration, you're, you're given a mind that understands this stuff. Not everything, but those first lessons you do. Regeneration gives you intellectual illumination, and, and regeneration liberates your will. It frees you from its bondage in a nature dominated by sin. The Spirit frees you from the shackles of the power of sin. You're, you're given the freedom to come into the light of, of Christ's person. Regeneration gives you intellectual illumination. Regeneration liberates your will from its bondage to sin. Number three, regeneration cleanses your heart. John 3, 5 says you were born of water. That means you were spiritually washed. All the, I was saved when I was 26, and so when, when the Spirit regenerated me, you know how much sin he cleansed? 26 years of filth in my heart. And he cleansed it and he washed it. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says you were washed in the name of the Lord Jesus. Your desires were purified. They were renewed. You had these, these new affections that you never had before. The Holy Spirit gave you a new spirit, a new heart. You started loving people for the first time. You started loving people you, you never imagined you could. You see, before Christ, you, you hated everybody in the church. But now every believer in your church draws out this new, gracious, overflowing love. I remember years ago, my old, old church, Grace, Grace Church back in L.A., one of the testimonies, I think you might have remembered that, he said, I, I grew up in the church. I hated everybody. I hated everybody. And then Christ gave me a new heart. That's regeneration. Regeneration affects all of you, who you are. It's intensive and it is extensive. There's no part of your life that goes untouched. You, you don't become perfect, but at the same time, there's no, there's no little dark corner of your heart that the Spirit stays away from. The, the Spirit is always searching, kind of poking around, kind of looking. I, I see that. You're trying to hide this. Look at under the bed. I see that too. You've got to clean this up too. It's always making you aware of new areas of your heart that you need his purifying power for. And in verse 3, this is what Paul is referring to. You know, when this, when this renewal began, when you were first saved, were, were you circumcised? No, I was there. 
Verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You receive Christ and the Spirit by faith. The Spirit changed your life. I, I saw it. He starts pretty harshly in verse 3. Are you so foolish? He's so frustrated. You, you received the Spirit and it made it clear you were part of the people of God and now you're going to finish by the flesh? You started by trusting in Christ alone and now you're going to finish by getting circumcised? The Galatians' new approach to their life, Paul calls being perfected by the flesh. The flesh is the old Adam, the unregenerate person. And, and, and the God of grace to the Galatians, has, has they, for some reason, he's turned into this judge of condemnation. Paul says, you've turned the God of glorious grace and mercy into a God that, who's a miser, who's petty, who's a tyrant, where, where you, need to, you need to spend the rest of your life earning his favor. You now think that he would, he would never just love you out of his pure grace and mercy. Paul says, that's, that's fleshly. That's fleshly. Every unbeliever thinks like that. Paul implies in verse 3 that we start our lives with the gospel and we never leave the gospel behind. And I really think, I mean, in Romans 1, I always, I always wonder, what does from, you know, from faith to faith mean? Faith to faith. A lot of people don't, a lot of commentators don't understand what that means. And I, now I think I know what it means because of Galatians 3. Paul says, you start with faith in the gospel, and continue by believing in the gospel. From faith to faith, that's how it works. It's not as if justification is by faith and through the Spirit, and sanctification is by religious ceremonies and human effort. No, your sanctification shares the same basic dynamics as justification. It has a little more than that. But essentially, it has the basic dynamics. You're justified by faith alone through the Spirit alone, and now you're sanctified by faith alone through the Spirit alone. That doesn't mean that good works are unnecessary in sanctification. No, good works are the fruit of faith. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. Faith and repentance happen all at once. And so you're justified by faith alone. Repentance goes along with it. But the evidence of the powerful work of the Spirit, your most basic posture toward God, is faith in Christ. And works are the overflow of that faith. Faith in Christ is the energy for your obedience. Let me illustrate this by describing two different kinds of believers. And let me call those two lives the lawful life lawful life, lawful life, and the cruciform life. Jack lives the lawful life, and he's a true believer, and yet he's strayed from the grace of the gospel. He, he wakes up early Monday morning, and he, he served all day at church on Sunday. And it, he starts the day with Bible, reading, and prayer. He checks it off his Christian to-do list, and now he's pretty sure that God is going to bless him at work. Because he served all day on Sunday the day before, he, 
he did his quiet time, and so he go, goes to work. And then Sally, he, she accuses him of messing up on some major part of a team project. Jack defends himself vehemently. He accuses her of malice to some of his co-workers at lunch. He gossips. He slanders her behind her back. He's rude to her. He schemes. He makes plans to carry out revenge. He lies. He exaggerates to get out of the situation. And then suddenly he remembers God's word. And, he, and, and so at the end of the day, he grits his teeth and he musters up all his willpower power and he apologizes, he apologizes to Sally. And Jack goes home discouraged. He's confused why his day was so horrible when, in, when he's, been, he's been so faithful for all these years. He had a great quiet time in the morning. And so he murmurs against God. He ends the day questioning God's love. He questioning the faithfulness of God. And not once in his day did he realize that his greatest problem wasn't Sally, it was his sin. He's forgotten how great of a sinner he is. And his life is surprisingly similar to the life he lived before his salvation. Instead of going to church on Sunday, Jack tried to be a good person during the weekend. Instead of his morning devotion, he touched his lucky rabbit's foot. He checked the paper for a good horoscope. He dealt with the day in his own strength, in his own resources. And when, when he got home, he got angry against a God he didn't believe in. This is how many of us live as believers. Paul says to you, verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? The second life is the cruciformed life. And Cindy wakes up Monday morning after serving her church on Sunday. And as soon as she wakes up, she knows one thing. That of all the problems she's going to face in the day, she knows that her biggest problem has been nailed to a cross. And yet she knows she forgets the cross so easily, so she dives into the ocean of gospel love. She trusts in the Son of God's love for her. She knows Christ's love will never fluctuate, no matter how guilty she feels, because she is so confident in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And so... As she reads her Bible in the morning, the passages she reads simply reinforce that reality. She prays that she will trust in the Lord all day for her identity, for her contentment. She prays that her every response to a challenge would be met relying on the Holy Spirit for strength to obey His command. She drives to work reminding herself that she has died with Christ and to the power of her old sinful ways. She reminds herself that she has been raised with Christ in His resurrection power. And, and because of that power, she, she, she knows she can obey God in every circumstance. She gets to work and her co-worker attacks her and she does a better job than Jack did. But by no means was she this picture of sinful perfection. And at the end of the day, she asks forgiveness from God for her sins. She asks for power to confess her sins to the, co to the co-worker she has sinned against. But her biggest grief during the day wasn't her sinfulness against her co-worker. As bad as that was, she realizes her biggest problem was her sin committed against her Savior. And so when she gets home, 
she rejoices because she believes that Christ alone is more than enough to wash her sin away. And she ends the day rejoicing in the fact that she has everything in Christ. Everything. And friends, those two lies I've described are dramatically different. Dramatically different. What life do you live? We see two words in verse 3. Begun by the Spirit. See the second word, perfected. Begun and perfected by the flesh. And it's interesting, in a book that Paul later wrote, Philippians, you find the same two words, begun and perfected. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I really believe Paul is making an intentional comparison. The same God gave you the gospel to believe in and gave you the spirit to obey him finishes the same way. Verse 4, Paul says, don't waste your suffering for Christ by finishing your life like a like a Pharisee. Finish the way you started. And then in verse 5, Paul writes that, that he who provides you with the Spirit, this is this timeless present, he's going to continue to provide you with the Spirit. Remember the, the apostles who worked miracles among you? Did, did they do it by the works of the law or did they do it by faith? Did they emphasize the law as the source of that power or did they... Or did they Emphasize it was God alone who was the source of that power. So how, do, how do we summarize Paul's point in these first five verses of chapter 3? Paul does it for us in Galatians 5.5. 5. He says this, For we through the Spirit, by faith, are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. This is a good summary verse that should describe our lives in Christ. As Christians, we need to learn the gospel every day because every day we are prone to wander. Daily we are bewitched by these glories of the world. We, we act as if a spell has been cast over us. We forget so easily that sin is our biggest problem in life. And so living on autopilot, brothers and sisters, will, brothers and sisters it will not do. Every day there must be a struggle, an intentional effort to keep the gospel as the greatest treasure of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're, co- we're so confused about our priorities. We, we don't interpret reality correctly. Day by day, we live and act and feel as if sin is number 30 on our, on our list. No wonder, what, no wonder we're so worried and anxious. No wonder we, we struggle with joy we don't know our biggest problem. 
But for a believer, once we do, then everything becomes clear. Then the, the gospel rises like the sun at dawn. And it becomes the foundation of our life. It becomes the source of our joy. It becomes our greatest hope. So Lord, help us, help us never forget the cross. Help us never forget that we have the Spirit living within us. We pray.